remind everybody, we're having a men's prayer breakfast this Saturday morning at 7.30. And you're going to be here. You cooking? Yeah. Okay, good. Hmm? Any requests? No, no, just haven't seen beavers since they left last week, so I didn't know what's going on with with them. So, okay, men's prayer breakfast Saturday, deacons meeting at nine o'clock, and then on Sunday, April the sixth, we'll be having our tenth anniversary uh, celebration, and so that's going to be fun. I understand there that a couple of people are working on a. Uh, picture photo slideshow going back over the last 10 years so that'll be fun to see that starting off in the church i wish we had a picture i doubt they do a picture i, I always heard these stories about uh at that time there were these we were doing primitive videos from preston city bible church that were coming down here and they would play them and there would be pink curtains that would descend on me and strange things like that wish we had a copy of that but Anyway, men's prayer breakfast is coming up on April the 19th. Now, that is the Saturday between, um, excuse me, not men's prayer breakfast, uh, men's overnight camp out, which is we're combining everything. The board meeting will be out there and everything. That's April 18th and 19th. April 18th is Good Friday. So I don't know how much that's going to impact people. For some people, that will be good. They may have Friday off, and they can come out early and things of that nature. So let me know if that's a problem. And then Resurrection Sunday is April the 20th, and the annual garage sale for Camp Arete will be on Saturday, May the 3rd. And <clears throat> if you need any help hauling your stuff, contact Jeff in the back. Jeff, raise your hand. There he is. Okay. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear. So we are to make sure that we are in fellowship, which means simply to admit or acknowledge in silent prayer, our sins to God the Father, and instantly we are forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and restored to fellowship. So uh, we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we can come together this evening, that we can have fellowship around the teaching of your word, that we can be an encouragement and be encouraged by your word and also encourage one another by just our presence here, our desire to know your word and to know the truth. Father, we pray that as we continue this study related to your plan for the ages, that we might gain hope and encouragement for uh, the fact that you are moving history in a direction that resolves the problem of evil and will eventually deal completely in a just way with the problem of sin and evil. And we pray, too, that as we come to understand this important teaching, that it will help us to understand how how important it is as it helps us to understand your word more clearly and precisely. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, last time, which was on a Sunday morning when we began this series, I began to focus on God's plan for the ages, and that was really the introductory message to give us just a slight overview of major themes that are brought out in dispensationalism. Since then, we've had our conference for the Chafer Seminary Conference, and the focus on that was, of course, on dispensationalism. And I had several people comment that at no point during the conference did anybody really put up a chart other than maybe one or two in terms of talking about history and how different people periodized the dispensations. I think it is uh, not uncommon for most people who hear the term dispensation or dispensationalism to immediately get into their mind uh, a picture of a dispensational chart, God's plan for the ages. That's something that is familiar to, to many of us. But one thing that we should understand is that uh, dispensational charts, the periodization of history in terms of these ages or dispensations, isn't the essence of dispensationalism. In fact, we went through these, this whole conference, and we didn't talk about that. That is really more technically God's plan for the ages or God's timetable or a dispensational chart. But dispensationalism is a... A theological system that has a lot more to it than simply understanding the progression of the ages. And I think that a lot of people realized that as we went through the, went through the lesson. Dispensational, dispensationalism is a theological system that develops from a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, what I mean by that, and the way I'm emphasizing that, is first of all, we have to understand what a theological system is. A theological system is an, uh, usually a logically organized, internally coherent uh, system of theological beliefs related to God, man, sin, salvation, the future, the history of man, the spiritual life, all of these things uh, included together. In an, in an organized manner, and that a, the, a theological system is usually related to certain denominations uh, or, or Christian groups. For example, we have Roman Catholic theology. You have Lutheran theology. You have um, Baptist theology. You have Reformed theology. Now, one of the things that we'll have to do as we go through this series is define some of these terms, a lot of people aren't user-friendly with the term Reformed theology. You may be more user-friendly with the word Calvinism. Calvinism is the theological beliefs, basically summarizes the theological beliefs that are inherent within most Reformed churches. When you look at the Protestant Reformation, you have a Reformation that occurred according to nations, usually. You had the German Reformation, which produced Lutheranism. In France, you had a Reformation centered in France and in the French area of Switzerland that was influenced by John Calvin, and this became known as Reformed Theology. And so you had a number of state churches, such as the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, you had the Scottish Reformed Church. You had other Reformed churches, and they uh, their belief system was was Calvinistic at that particular time. So when we talk about Reformed theology, we're not talking about a particular denomination. 
but a belief system that characterized congregational churches, uh, Presbyterian churches, some independent Baptist churches as, as well, but that hangs together as a consistent system of theology. And then you have dispensationalism as a system of theology, and dispensationalism is also transdenominational. Lutheran theology is pretty much focused on Lutherans uh, as well as, for example, Baptists or Mennonites are more re- related to certain denominational distinctives. But dispensationalism, is, like Reformed theology, is also trans, uh, transdenominational. What makes dispensationalism distinct from other systems is, as I pointed out in the previous uh, in the previous lesson, it is derived inductively from Scripture. Now, a lot of the other systems will claim that they are derived inductively, but if they are analyzed in detail, they are usually they usually slip in certain a priori deductions that then influence their conclusions so that part of what they say is, is, is inductive, part is deductive because they have a certain commitment to a theological system. And a lot of what they may have in their theological system may be biblically correct, but usually what we see in, in these kinds of systems since the beginning of the church is that they've brought in or imported into their theology certain philosophical conclusions. For example, in the early church, you had, starting in the mid-second century, you had a large influence on Christian theology from Neoplatonism. And the result of blending conclusions from uh, what was then the popular dominant philosophical system of the day, Neoplatonism, with the scriptures, you ended up with an allegorical uh, interpretation of scripture. So Reformed theology is guilty of this. From our opinion, they are not consistent in terms of deriving all of their principles from a from an inductive study of of the scriptures. So this is one thing that makes uh, dispensationalism. Sorry about that. What one of the things that makes dispensational distinct is that it is a uh, theology that is totally derived from the scriptures rather than imposing a theological system upon the scriptures. So just to remind you in terms of a brief working definition that we have at the beginning is that dispensationalism is a theological system. Now there are some writers who have identified it more as a philosophy of history, but by saying it's a theological system, we're emphasizing the fact that it is derived first and foremost from the Scripture, and then it impacts or develops for us a view of a view of history. So it's a theological system. Uh, we could I could maybe clarify that by saying inductively derived from the Scriptures, which understands that God sovereignly governs the history of the human race through a sequence of divinely directed administrations. See, dispensationalism really focuses the the ideas on administration of history rather than the periods of history. And that these divinely directed administrations are marked by distinctive periods of time as God works out his plan to destroy sin and evil. Now, since 
Dispensationalism first became popular in the middle 19th century. Numerous critics have leveled a variety of unjustified and false charges against dispensationalists. It's almost as if we're everybody's whipping boy. If there's a problem, it's because of dispensationalism. If you read certain books that came out in the uh, during the time of the of the Second Gulf War, then uh, there was one in particular by uh, an author named Kevin Phillips, I believe, and he basically accuses Bush, the second. George W., of being influenced by dispensational theology, which is why he was uh, invading Iraq. So uh, ultimately what he's saying is we're in the mess we're in because of dispensationalism. I doubt George W. Bush ever heard the word. I'm not sure he could pronounce it if he had heard the word. (laughs) But that's the problem we have today. People continue to put out these ideas. The same thing was said about Ronald Reagan. They were afraid Ronald Reagan would take us to the brink of World War III because he had read Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. So the uh, non-conservative uh, left of this country, both theologically and politically, especially when they come together, often accuse politicians who are biblically conservative of being influenced by by uh, a certain view of eschatology or future things causing them to do the things they do, and I don't think that's particularly true. It may have had some minor influence with Reagan, but he's probably the only one. Dispensationalists have also been called liberals, they've been called modernists, they've been called heretics, and they've been called antinomians. In some cases, critics of dispensationalism have used guilt-by-association tactics and included us in a list of sects or cults, including Mormon, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, and in one particular work, we were even associated with Adolf Hitler and Nazism. Dispensationalists have been charged with teaching two different ways of salvation, salvation by the law in the Old Testament, salvation by grace in the New Testament. But anyone who is an objective student of the Bible and an objective student of history will understand that none of these charges are true. No one in the dispensational camp has ever held to any of those uh, positions. But what's important as we begin this study is to address the question What is the essence of dispensationalism? And I don't know how true this is. I think Dr. Johnson mentioned this this last week, but I'm not sure if it actually was him, but it probably was. He was the only one in a position to know this. The story is that in the early 60s, in 1965, Dr. Charles Ryrie, who was at the time, I believe, the head of the theology department at Dallas Theological Seminary, published a critical book called Dispensational, Dispensationalism Today. As During the time that he was writing this, this was a topic of discussion in faculty meetings at Dallas Seminary, and as he was going into one of these meetings, someone asked him the question, if you boil it all down, what are the essential aspects of dispensationalism? What are the necessary items that must be there? And Dr. Ryrie included those in a section of his, of his book, 
which he identified as the sine qua non of dispensationalism, which is a Latin phrase meaning without which nothing. In other words, he's identifying the key essential elements that make dispensationalism uh, dispensationalism. So he wrote that in 1965, and his purpose at the time was to present classic dispensational teaching in a positive way in order to correct misunderstandings and allay suspicions about it. This is something that's pretty much characterized any writing on dispensationalism for the last uh, 60 or 75 years. He updated the book in 1995 in order to deal with development since the first edition, and I was asked by a couple of different people since the conference if I would uh, put together a list of suggested reading or bibliography on dispensationalism, and I, I did that today, so that should be posted up on the uh, Dean Bible Ministries website pretty quickly. Uh, in his initial book, he identified three things that were the essential elements of dispensationalism. Now, he put these in a slightly different order, I'm not sure why he did it this way. He put the distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church first. But the way he worded the second point was to say that uh, this distinction was the result of literal interpretation. So I've reorganized these according to their logical uh, logical connection, and that is that we begin with the first view, which is a consistent literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. And again and again, if you were at the conference, you heard reference to uh, the fact that dispensationalism is a theological system. It's not a separate system of hermeneutics, a separate system of interpretation. It is just taking the historic plain grammatical historical view of interpretation and applying it consistently in the study of Scripture. Now, that's important because some of these other theological systems may uh, affirm literal grammatical interpretation to a point, but especially when they get to prophecy, they begin to fudge and they began to interpret certain things prophetically in non a non-literal manner. For example, they might say that the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was a literal land, but because Israel rejected the Messiah, that now refers to heaven. And so they've taken a literal description of geographical real estate, and they've made that uh, given that a symbolic value where it relates to heaven. And so they've done this with a number of things. There are some writers who, uh, typology is a legitimate form of interpretation of Scripture because there are certain things in the Old Testament that do depict New Testament truth or they depict uh, soteriological truth such as the lamb, the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament is a picture of the lamb of God uh, the Messiah who takes away the sin of the world. That's So typology is legitimate, but you'll run into some authors at times, and the example that comes to my mind is A.W. Pink. Sometime back in the early 70s, when I was in college, somebody recommended uh, A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink, uh, to me. Arthur Pink was a hyper-Calvinist, as well as someone who was excessively into typology. Everything 
mentioned in the Old Testament represents something else. He's got this multi-tiered uh, system of interpretation that really goes far beyond the literal meaning of the, of the text, and you'll run into that uh, that at times. So we emphasize a consistent literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. I'll come back and talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Second, as a result of that, we understand that God has a distinct plan for Israel and a distinct plan for the church, that Israel means Israel all through the Scriptures, the church means the church all through the scriptures. The church does not mean Israel. Israel is not the church in the Old Testament. The church is not Israel in the New Testament. That you don't have a physical Israel in the Old Testament and a spiritual Israel in the New Testament. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. And God has a distinct plan for, for both uh, peoples uh, throughout history and into the future. And then the third distinctive is that the overall purpose of God's plan for his creation is his glory. Now, I want you to think about this a minute in relation to the study we've had in Romans on Thursday nights. Romans 3.23, we studied the, the key verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we studied that, I pointed out that the term the glory of God was a figure of speech that in many, in some cases it's talking about literally his glory, but in many places it's put the glory of God is put for his entire essence. Now, if we think of Romans 3.23, that makes sense because what we're saying is that, that man cannot live up to the standards of the perfect character of God. And it's not just his glory, which for many of us is, a depict, is the radiance of his being, uh, but it's talking about the essence of his being. But then when we look at... at um, a passage like this where we're talking about, or a statement like this where we're talking about God's glory being the unifying principle of Scripture, if we think of that in terms of his essence, his essential attributes, his character, then we say that the unifying theme of Scripture is the vindication of his character. Now, doesn't that make sense, especially if you think about that in light of uh, the satanic rebellion and the angelic conflict, and Satan's uh, claim that God has not dealt justly with his creatures, and why could, how could a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? How could God in his justice send creatures to an eternity in the lake of fire? Some sort of challenge like that. Now, that's a theological deduction from Scripture, but some sort of charge like that on the part of Satan is is very likely and helps to explain a number of the issues of Scripture. So if we, we understand that the glory of God has to do with the vindication of his essence, then that helps us to understand that. And then secondarily, in terms of, in terms of <clears throat> dispensationalism versus covenant theology, the overriding principle in covenant theology for understanding the Bible and history is God's redemptive plan. But redemption only applies to human beings. It doesn't apply to angelic beings. So within Reformed theology, there is a, <clears throat> a lack of emphasis on doctrines related to the angels, the angelic conflict, things of that nature. Now, that's not as true in the 20th century. But from the early 1500s through the 19th century, 
Reformed theologies are, are virtually silent when it comes to the angelic conflict or when it comes to any kind of discussion of spiritual warfare. Some years ago, a friend of mine, who a pastor uh, from the Houston area, asked me a question as he was studying through these areas, and he knew that Tommy and I had written a book on spiritual warfare, commented, he said, well, he said, Robbie, why is it that you find so little discussion about spiritual warfare in Reformed theologies? And the answer is, after I thought about it a while, is that because they have, they've limited the purpose of, of God in history to redemption, and redemption doesn't apply to the angelic creation, the angelic creation isn't as significant within their theological framework as it is in ours because it doesn't fit their overall purpose. So they've, they've truncated that. So these are the three essential elements in dispensationalism. And what I want to do in this lesson is focus more on the first one, which is that we believe in a consistent, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you were going to prove that the Bible should be interpreted literally, how would you go about that? What way would you, what, what, what tactic would you use and let's say in a debate or in a discussion with someone to show that the Bible should be interpreted according to a consistent literal historical interpretation. I think there are a number of ways that you could go about that, one of which would be the nature of language and the nature of meaning. But I'm thinking instead of, that would be a philosophical argument, but I'm thinking just with a purely biblical argument, how would you go about defending a literal, consistent interpretation of Scripture. Just think about that. What do we mean when we say a consistent, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation? First of all, the concept of literal, as, I, as defined by Webster's New International Dictionary, states that literal means the natural or usual construction and implication of a writing or expression. See, expression would cover verbal statements as well, following the ordinary and apparent sense of words. And then semicolon, and then it says not allegorical or metaphorical. Now, when it comes to literal interpretation, dispensationalists believe that the normal everyday use of language includes numerous idioms and figures of speech that are not taken at just surface dictionary meaning of the terms. And we run into those kinds of things all the time in language. And trust me, just go to a foreign country where you have to teach through an interpreter to discover how idiomatic and figurative our language is. We all use a lot of slang terms. We may not even think, identify them as slang terms, but they're not literal, and just try to communicate through a, an interpreter who's not adept at translating American idioms. You're going to run into problems very quickly. I thought I turned that off. I did. Um, so... Literal mean, doesn't mean wooden. This is what our critics say, is that, that we just want to hold to a wooden, rigid meaning of language. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that we hold to a uh, the use of language in its normal, everyday sense, 
And that what we must understand, therefore, is how the original languages of Scripture, Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, was understood by the man on the street. Now, this is important because the man on the street in the New Testament wasn't speaking Attic Greek or Boeotian Greek or any other kind of classical Greek. He was speaking Koine Greek. Koine means common Greek. He was speaking the street language. The New Testament was written in street language, the language of the everyday person, even though there may have been idioms or expressions that had their roots ultimately in classical Greek. The man on the street didn't know that from anything else. He just used those expressions as they had meaning in the uh, time in which he lived. He didn't need to know anything beyond that. So the way in which we understand the meaning of these terms and phrases is to examine literature that is written during the same time frame as the New Testament. We can gain some insights, usually they're a lot less than some people might think, from exploring the etymology of a, of a language, the history of the development of words and expressions. And we do that uh, even in English. We can go back and we can look at a word and its derivation and its history, but the key to meaning for a word is how that word is used at the time in which it's written. So when we talk about uh, literal interpretation, that meaning historical has to do with interpreting the scripture in light of the time in which it was written, understanding the the language at that time. For example, in English today, we may have an expression where we look at something and, and we like it and we say it's cool. Well, ha, ha, what would that mean to somebody who lived in the late 19th century? What would they hear if they if they heard that expression? What would that mean to them? It wouldn't mean that it was something that was uh, really nice, something that was acceptable, something that was popular, something that um, uh, that we wanted to emulate. It was just something that was not hot. So that would be the literal meaning of the word versus a figurative meaning. The only way to discover these things is to study how the word is used in its historical historical environment. So we're emphasizing that, that it's literal, it follows the ordinary and normal use of language. Now, one of the best overall uh, uh, statements on literal interpretation is one that was formulated by David L. Cooper, which reads as follows, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense. In other words, when you read it and God says to Abraham that he is to walk the breadth of the land from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean and down to the river of Egypt, that he's not talking about walking from the Brazos River to the Sabine River and then up to the Red River, that the meaning is exactly as it should be understood. The Euphrates is the Euphrates, the Mediterranean is the, Mediter- the Great Seas, the Mediterranean, and the river of Egypt is the Wadi el-Horish. So this is the way, what is meant by when it makes common sense, when it's understood the way it's written, then you, we should seek no other sense. We have to look at that literal meaning of those words. The conclusion then, he writes, therefore take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. Notice how many words we have to pile up to make sure we get our point across. Ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context cause you to change your mind. In other words, there's something in the text. Jesus says, I'm going to speak to you in parables. 
oh, okay, all of a sudden we know that a parable is symbolic language, that this is a story that represents a universal truth. So we're not going to interpret a parable like we would interpret a piece of legal literature, for example, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to interpret it differently because we know that there are, there's sort of a symbolic representation there. So there's got to be a reason from the text itself as to why we interpret it in a different fashion. So uh, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths. So related passages means comparing Scripture with Scripture. This is a principle called the analogy of Scripture where we compare Scripture with Scripture. Some passages are clear, some are a little ambiguous, and we always interpret the ambiguous passages in light of the clear passages. So you compare Scripture with Scripture, and also in light of axiomatic and fundamental truths, that is, doctrinal truths that are derived uh, exegetically from other passages of Scripture. As these are put together, it helps us to interpret other passages. So this is the principle of literal interpretation of the Scripture. Now, in the history of interpretation, two dominant ways of interpreting the Scripture have emerged. A consistent literal interpretation, which is what I've been describing, and an allegorical interpretation. I would see these at the, at the two extreme opposites on a spectrum. Now, over the course of the history of the church, not everyone has been consistent in their view. Some are purely allegorical. Some are, are more consistent with a literal interpretation. But many systems of theology are partially literal and partially uh, allegorical. I, even in the early church, and by this I'm referring to the post-apostolic period, the period in the second century from roughly 100 to 200, even during that period you see that the dominant view of interpretation was literal, but they weren't very consistent at it. They still had a certain amount of allegory or symbolic interpretation because they weren't thinking in terms of, of, of rigorous theology yet. Uh, they were more concerned with not being persecuted and not being martyred than they were with developing a, a in-depth systematic systematic theology. These views are uh, often the spectrum is what we usually find in Roman Catholicism, which is more heavily allegorical. Lutheran theology has a certain degree of allegory, especially when it comes to prophecy. So does Wesleyan theology. But when you get to some forms of Baptist theology, some forms of holiness Pentecostal theology, they have a more consistent look. In fact, there are many groups within the holiness Pentecostal stream that are dispensational and have been heavily influenced by the Schofield Reference Bible and dispensationalism. But the question we should ask is, how, are, how should we interpret the Bible? How, should, how can we prove or how can we demonstrate from the text that the Bible should be interpreted literally. And I suggest that the best way to do that is to see how the Bible interprets itself because there are numerous places in the Scripture where there are prophecies given. Now, the reason I'm focusing on prophecy is because that's the issue 
uh, in the debate between dispensationalism and other uh, other systematic theologies is they'll be literal to a point, but usually it's in prophecy, maybe a little more, but usually it's in prophecy where they become uh, completely allegorical. So what we're going to do is look at some prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled and to see, well, were they fulfilled literally or were they fulfilled in a non-literal fashion? So turn with me in your Bibles to First uh, Kings uh, chapter 13. First Kings chapter 13. This is one of my favorite passages to go to. We've studied this before in different series, including the King series. In First Corinthians chapter 13, I mean First Kings chapter 13, we're in the period of Old Testament uh, Old Testament history known as the divided kingdom. The kingdom has just divided in the previous chapter with the one of the early tax revolts where the ten tribes of the north uh, revolted against Rehoboam, the uh, son of Solomon in the south. And so there's a division. God was allowing this as discipline on Israel because of the paganism that was brought in under Solomon. And now he's going to divide the kingdom. And so Jeroboam, as the leader of the tax revolt in the north, becomes the first king in the north, and he decides to he decides to lead the people into apostasy. He recognized that that if you're going to have a a nation, and that nation seeks its foundation in another nation, then you're going to have problems. And by that I mean that he recognized that if they were going to live under the Mosaic law that his people in the north were constantly going to have to go to Jerusalem to worship. And this would not uh, strengthen their independence. They would be dependent upon Jerusalem. And so he said, well, we're going to change our focal point of worship. And he established uh, a, a two alternate sites of, of worship, one in Bethel and the other in Dan, which is far in the north of Israel. As a result of this, God sent a prophet to challenge Jeroboam and to announce judgment on him. And this is where the story begins in chapter 13, verse 1. Behold, a man of God, this is a prophet, sent by God, went from Judah in the south. So his origin is in the, the kingdom of Judah, which is viewed not... This northern king was always viewed as apostate because none of their kings were ever viewed as being obedient to God. And this started with Jeroboam because every king in the north that followed him followed in his sin, and so they continued in their idolatry. So this is a man of God, a prophet from the south, who goes to Bethel, which is just about uh, 15, 18 miles north of, of Jerusalem, went to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So we also see that Jeroboam, as the king in the north, is assuming to himself the rights and privileges of the priesthood. So this just is just indicating more and more of his apostasy. And then the prophet is going to announce judgment against Jeroboam, verse 2. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh. Behold a child, Josiah by name. So he's predicting that there will be a future individual, 
named Josiah. This isn't the kind of general statements you get from reading your horoscope in in the newspaper or reading Nostradamus, you know, things that could just be shaped to mean whatever you want them to make. Their, their specific details are, are given. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. That's in the other country, the other line of kingship. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places, who burn incense on you. So there's going to be a military defeat, at least a partial conquest of the north by a Davidic king in the south. And as a result of that, he's going to take the apostate kings, that, uh, the apostate priests that worship in the north, and he will sacrifice them on this altar. And men's bones shall be burned on you. More detail. Verse 3, and he gave, that is, the prophet gave a sign the same day, saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. And so this event would indicate that uh, that this is what was going to happen. Now, it came to pass, verse 4, that when Jeroboam heard this, he, he cried out against, <clears throat> against, the, um, against the prophet, that he would be arrested, and when he reached out with his hand to grab the prophet, his hand withered, and he couldn't even pull it back. And at, at the same time that he's reaching out to grab this prophet, and his hand withers, the altar next to him split in two. That is the the immediate sign that that that, that validates this prophecy. Verse five: the altar was also split apart. Now. What do you think happened? Does the altar refer to something spiritual that's happening in heaven? Does the altar refer to uh, some sort of uh, uh, spiritual symbol uh, in, the, in some future age? No, he's talking about a physical event. His withered hand doesn't refer to the fact that his spiritual life withered. It's talking about the fact that his literal hand or his literal arm withered. Everything about this it should be taken uh, literally. The altar, the announcement in the prophecy was that the altar would be split apart. That doesn't have any symbolism. What actually happened? The physical altar split apart. So you see the interpretation, the meaning of the prophecy was literal. It was not symbolic or allegorical. Now, when we go to the fulfillment of the passage, we have to turn to 2 Kings chapter 23. The heart of the passage or the prophecy was that a child would be born, a descendant of David named Josiah, who would sacrifice priests on the high places. Now, does that mean instead of a literal sacrifice that he, well, you know, that, that might border on, on human sacrifice and that's pagan, so he wouldn't have done that. He's really going to put them off into some sort of cloistered uh, priesthood. And they're not going to be able to live outside of that. The reason I use that example is because in the story of Jephthah in Judges chapter 9, Jephthah made a rash vow that if God would give him victory over the Ammonites, then when he returned, he would sacrifice to God whatever came out of the door of his house to meet him when he came back. And when he came back, his daughter came running out to greet him, and the Scripture says he did as he vowed. A lot of evangelicals are squeamish with that, and they say, oh, he didn't really 
uh, sacrifice her literally. He didn't offer her as a burnt offering, which is the phrase he used for, for a sacrifice. He, he just uh, dedicated her to God, and she lived her life uh, in celibacy, something like a in, in a cloistered nun, nunnery or something of that nature, none of which has anything to do with the literal value of the words in the text. And so we have the same kind of thing here. There, there's no uh, symbolism or allegory behind the text here. We have to see what will actually take place. So we turn to Second Kings 23.15. In 2 Kings 23.15, we read that, that Josiah, now the king, so we have a literal fulfillment of a, of a young, young man uh, who's young when he became king, and he is going to uh, have a conquest of, of the north, and he's going to seek to extend the worship, the biblical worship of the south into, uh, into the north. And so we read in verse 15 of chapter 23 that as he did this, he was uh, destroying the high places uh, all around Jerusalem. Verse 13 identifies this, that he defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south south by the Mount of Corruption, uh, which which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Asherah, the uh, abomination of the Sidonians, etc., and he goes on, and it says, Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, in verse 15. So this is the altar that Jeroboam had established. Where is it located? Literally at Bethel. And it's a literal fulfillment of the passage. It's not applying it in some sort of symbolic or allegorical fashion. The altar that was at Bethel in the high place, which Jeroboam the son of Nebat who made Israel sin, had made both the altar and the high place, he broke down. So he goes up to Bethel and he destroyed uh, the altar there, and he burned the high place, crushed it to powder, and burned the wooden, wooden image. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain. So they had created a graveyard, a cemetery near that, uh, near that altar, and he sent and he took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed. See, by associating with that which was dead, it defiled and rendered the altar unclean. And so there is a, what we see here is that the fulfillment is literal. Exactly what was predict, predicted. It, he doesn't, the, the fulfillment isn't some sort of symbolic or allegorical fulfillment. Let's look at another example. This is in Ezekiel chapter 26. Ezekiel chapter 26, and is the prophecy related to the destruction of the city of Tyre. Tyre was located in Phoenicia up near Sidon and is a uh, controls much of the maritime trade, much of the maritime commerce, and there was a lot of competition between uh, Jerusalem between Judah and Tyre in the north. Now, God is going to pronounce a judgment against Tyre because of her opposition to Israel and because of her idolatry. And so we re- read, beginning in verse uh, 2, because uh, Tyre has said against Jerusalem. 
This is a form of anti-Semitism. Even though Jerusalem may be under divine judgment, those who are hostile to Israel, even when she's apostate, are still subject to the judgment of God according to the Abrahamic covenant. One of the reasons I, I wanted to point that out, this came up during the conference, I wanted to point that out is because there's a certain segment of uh, political belief here. Usually it's found within the libertarian strain where they don't think that Israel is that important today. And I've heard this from some people, even in dispensational crowds, that, well, the return of Israel to the land isn't that important. They've returned in apostasy. Uh, We don't need to bless them. The United States shouldn't have anything to do with Israel because they're an apostate nation, and until they return spiritually, we don't need to bless them. This isn't part of, uh, part of our responsibility. The reality is the Abrahamic covenant doesn't have a conditional clause in it that if you bless Israel, God will bless you. If you bless Israel while they're obedient, God will bless you. And if you curse Israel, uh, while, uh, if you curse Israel when they're disobedient, God won't curse you. Well, the principle is what, no matter what Israel's condition is, those who bless Israel will be blessed, those who curse Israel will be cursed. So God is protecting them. So this is an example of a pagan culture that is uh, antagonistic to Israel. So Tyre says, Aha, she is broken, who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. And then it goes on to say, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, this is the pronouncement against Tyre, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. So the first part of this, this is the general part of the prophecy down to verse 6, and it gets more specific after it. So there are going to be many nations, not just one, but many nations that are responsible for the destruction of Tyre. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre, so the fortifications around Tyre will be taken down. They will break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. Now, Tyre, there are two cities of Tyre. One is on the mainland, and then there was a small island just off the coast, about 1,200 feet, just a little over a kilometer off the coast. And both are known as Tyre. We'll look at that in just a minute. So what he's predicting is that everything will be destroyed, everything that's a remnant of Tyre will be scraped off down to the bedrock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. Also her daughter villages, that is the various uh, villages that, that circle like suburbs around Tyre, her daughter villages which are in the fields shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord." Okay, in this slide, I've got a map of, of, uh, of Israel. Here's uh, Jerusalem down here in the south. This area up here is the north of Israel and Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee. And then north in what is now modern Lebanon, we have the city of Tyre. Sidon is north of Tyre, then Zarephath. This is the area uh, that we're talking about here in Tyre. And after Nebuchadnezzar, had defeated uh, had defeated Jerusalem, then Nebuchadnezzar headed back north, and Nebuchadnezzar 
uh, attacked Tyre. This is what's covered in the next section of verses, Ezekiel 26, 7. Remember, this is prophecy before the events happen. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, with chariots, with horsemen, and an army with many people. Now, how is that fulfilled? Is that fulfilled literally or is that fulfilled figuratively? Well, literally, Nebuchadnezzar, with his armies, uh, came from the north. They attacked Israel and Judah, Jerusalem, and they attacked Tyre. He will slay with your with the sword your daughter, villages in the fields. That's a, a repeat of verse 6. So there is the, 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 the verses 3 through 6 give a summary of the destruction of Tyre. It happened over several invasions, the first being Nebuchadnezzar, the final being uh, Alexander the Great. Nebuchadnezzar is going to attack, lay up a siege mound, build a wall against you. Uh, he'll direct your battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he'll break down your tires. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagon. This is all describing the siege. So uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, there was a siege. So what we see here in these verses is Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the city of Tyre. That's fulfilled literally. Many nations would also come against Tyre over the subsequent years from six, about 605 when this initial siege of Tyre took place until the time of Alexander the Great. There would be numerous nations that would attack Tyre. He predicts that Tyre would become like the top of a flat rock, totally barren, fishermen would spread their nets over the site, and Tyre would be thrown into the water and never rebuilt. Well, what actually took place was that in uh, in the fourth century, under under um, Alexander the Great, when Alexander came down and came along the coast from the north, he. Uh, tried to assault what was left of Tyre on the mainland. And everybody on the mainland, knowing he was coming, had fled. Uh, this was an open uh, open water here, about 1,200 feet from the, from the mainland to the island. And everybody fled across to the island. And then when uh, Alexander came along, he ordered his army to began to just dig up all of the ground, ground, stones, everything they could find, the rubble from the destruction of the city at earlier times, and everything would be thrown into the sea to build a causeway out to the island. And this is what he did. So they used everything they could, all the topsoil down to the bedrock, so that the original city of Tyre was completely and totally destroyed with all evidence of its prior existence removed and thrown into the water. And today, it's, it's, there's been some resettlement there, but for many centuries it was barren, and the fishermen would, use, would lay out their nets to dry on the, on the bare rock of Tyre. So how is that prophecy fulfilled? Is it figurative or is it literal? Another uh, quick example is Nineveh. Nineveh, we all know, was uh, warned by Jonah that if they didn't repent, God would destroy the city. Well, Nineveh repented and turned back to God, and God gave them another another uh, 200 years before he finally destroyed Nineveh. Uh, we're told a few things about Nineveh. Uh, we know that it was one of the most significant and populous cities in the ancient world. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. 
It was located on the eastern bank of the Tigris River across from the modern city of uh, Mosul in what is now modern, which is now Iraq. According to Genesis 10, it was originally founded by Nimrod. The ancient city was walled. The wall around the city was three miles long and about a half a mile wide. Uh, the overall length of the wall was eight miles. Nineveh, Nineveh was uh, the responded to Jonah's uh, prophecy of their destruction and warning of their destruction in about 790, 780 B.C. And then uh, about 100 years later, they reached their golden age. The golden age of Nineveh was in 663. But in 612, after a two-month siege, there was an alliance of Medes, Babylonians, and Scythians that destroyed the city. And what enabled them to destroy the city was that they released part of the city's water supply, and they broke the dam going that protected the city. Uh, and so the city was inundated by the Kosa River, which dissolved the sun-dried bricks of which much of the city was built, and this led to the absolute destruction of the ancient city of Nineveh. Now, this is how it's depicted in some of the passages of the prophecies. Nahum 1.8 gives the prophecy for the destruction of Nineveh. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place. Total destruction. And darkness will pursue his enemies. There it predicts a literal flood. And how is it fulfilled? A literal flood. Nahum 1.9, what do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. This leads to the complete and final destruction of Nineveh. And it was not recovered until the... Uh, late 19th century. Nahum 2.6, the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. This is what happened. The, the mud bricks just dissolved, destroyed the city. Nahum 3.10, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street, and they cast lots for honorable men. This describes the destruction which took place. Now, those are just some of the Old Testament passages, but there are many more that we can t think of. How was prophecy fulfilled? Literally, or figuratively. Think about passages like these related to the coming of Christ. Isaiah 7.14 predicted a literal virgin conception and birth. It's fulfilled literally in Matthew 1.18, 124, and 125. It's not a, doesn't have a figurative allegorical fulfillment, that literal prophecy, literal fulfillment. Genesis 49.10 predicted that the Messiah would descend in the tribe of Judah. This is clearly identified in Luke 3, 23 and 33. The Messiah literally was from the tribe of Judah. Micah 5, 2 predicts that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. This is fulfilled in Matthew 2, 6. It's a literal prophecy. It's not fulfilled allegorically. Isaiah 9.1 predicts that the ministry of the Messiah would be in the land of Galilee, the tribal areas of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is fulfilled in Matthew 4.12, 4.13, and 4.17. It's these names, identifications, are not just some sort of spiritual symbol. 
Zechariah 9.9 says that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's fulfilled in Luke 19.35-37. Isaiah 53.7 describes the opposition to the Messiah and the fact that he would be uh, executed, but that he would go to his execution like a sheep before cheerers. He would be silent. This is fulfilled in Matthew 27, 13, and 14. Isaiah 53, 9, he's buried with the rich. This is fulfilled in Matthew 27, 57 to 60. Uh, Psalm 16, 10 says that his body would not undergo corruption in the grave. That's cited and as fulfilled in Acts 2, 29 to 31. He's betrayed by a familiar friend with whom he shares bread. This was fulfilled in Matthew 26, 49 and John 13, 18, when Jesus offers the bread to Judas at the uh, Passover meal the night before he went to the cross. Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. That's predicted literally, 30 pieces of silver. He receives a literal 30 pieces of silver in Matthew 26, 15, the prophecy Zechariah 11, 12, uh, fulfilled in Matthew 26, 15. And then Jesus makes a prediction, prediction about the destruction of the temple that no, not one stone would be left upon another, talking about uh, the temple itself, the temple buildings. It's not talking about the, the what we call the Western Wall or Wailing Wall today. Uh, that was a restraining wall. It had nothing to do with the temple itself. So this is not talking about that, which is the only thing that remains. That wasn't part of the temple. And this was fulfilled in A.D. 70. The point that I've made is how do we answer that question? How would you show somebody that the Bible should be, trans, uh, should be interpreted literally? Well, we go to many examples where within the Bible we have predictions, and then we can also see how those predictions were fulfilled. They were fulfilled literally. So if prophecies that have been fulfilled were fulfilled literally, then the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled must also be fulfilled literally. And so that is the basis for how we are to understand Scripture, and we should not uh, bleed over into some sort of allegorical or symbolic interpretation. So that helps us understand the significance of literal interpretation. And I wanted to start with this because as we get in further into our study, we're going to see the importance of literal uh, interpretation, and it's that word consistent that is important for us, that as we look at other aspects of, of what the Scripture teaches, it's interpreting those things consistently on a literal basis that is what distinguishes dispensational theology. But not because it's dispensational. We're not using dispensational theology as the standard for interpretation. The standard for interpretation is a consistent literal interpretation and the result of that is that it's dispensational. Because it's biblical, it's dispensational. Okay? It's not, uh, it's not because it's dispensational, it's biblical. Okay? Because it's biblical, it's dispensational. The priority is on the scripture, not on the theological system. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think through these things tonight and to uh, be reminded that you have communicated clearly to us through the standard normal use of language and that by reading Scripture, by uh, in, 
uh, understanding it in the normal sense of language, we can come to understand your thinking, your direction, your guidance for us, and we can come to great comfort in Scripture that no matter how uncertain or chaotic things may be around us, that we can have certainty because you have communicated clearly to us and we can trust that communication. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.